proofs for God are complicated. And so I decided to break up this discussion into two sections. Here is the second part. We then move um, into uh, Bertrand Russell, who criticized these ideas, um, especially the idea we need to have a first cause as if we could ever prove um, that there was a God who was that first cause. And that even the idea of God is um, to be sort of cast away. If I told you, Russell said, that there was a teapot circling around um, the universe, and that teapot was not empirically definable, but was out there, would it make sense to believe in it? Uh, this is almost a little bit like uh, the spaghetti monster argument that you see sometimes circulating around the uh, cybersphere, the uh, video sphere today. But uh, Russell said this, quote, there's no reason to believe any of the dogmas of traditional theology and, and to wish that they were true. So I would say, as I said earlier, that the cosmological and teleological arguments are good, but they're not unassailable. Um, overall, it makes sense to infer from a cause, that, from an effect that there's a cause, to infer from this great uh, contingent world we see around us that there is a necessary being. That makes some sense. It's not a proof, maybe, but um, something that lends weight to faith, um, but also has plenty of reasons that people present alternatively. The teleological argument, as we'll look further and more deeply into evolutionary theory, what we see as design may simply be the process of survival of uh, the fittest. Uh, the process, that's to use um, not uh, Darwin's language, but that they're more, that in a better way, that there's a natural selection that occurs. Um, Blaise Pascal, living in the 1600s, the famous mathematician and um, philosophical writer, believed that we needed to wager on God. He was particularly wagering on whether we had eternal life or not. And he said, if you're going to wager, wager on eternal life. If you're right, you win something eternal. If you're wrong, in his view, you go to eternal hell. Uh, sorry, if, if, if you're right and you don't believe uh, if, and there's a God, then you're going to go to eternal hell. But if you don't, um, so the better wager is to wager that God does exist. I would broaden that out. And it, but here's how Pascal said it. Let us weigh gain and loss in calling heads that God is. Reckon these two chances. If you win, you win all. If you lose, you lose not. Then do not hesitate. Wager that God is. Wager, Pascal says, that there is truth and meaning and not random instead of meaninglessness and randomness. Now we come to the central proof in the problem of evil. Here's Epicurus ancient Greek philosopher. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So these, uh, this discussion of the problem of evil comes up often in uh, in science, because uh, particularly in evolutionary science, but in other places, 
death and destruction are part of the process of natural selection. And the way it's often phrased, uh, you know, in more modern terms, terms we might associate with the Enlightenment um, of the 17th and 18th century, is this, God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. The world contains evil and suffering. God, therefore, does not exist because either God cannot remove suffering or does not want to. And uh, so when we look at this, uh, partly it's the question of omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnibenevolent or all-good. Are those actually categories that can exist together? And like Whitehead said, um, and others have pointed out, if for God to be omnibenevolent, to be powerful and to cause all things to exist doesn't seem consistent. Um, God would seem to need to leave some level of freedom, freedom for the natural world to be the natural world so that with the log that burns uh, and warms us can also burn and, burn and harm us, cause fires, uh, and burn down our house or our city, if we're thinking perhaps of the 2018 Paradise Campfire or other fires that as I talk right now, are going on in California um, in September. Um, and freedom to choose love or to hate is basic to moral freedom. So natural evil and moral evil would seem to be based on freedom and would seem to mean that God's all power it doesn't mean that God causes everything, but that in God's decision there is a possibility for allowing for this freedom. Others say, no, that problem of evil is the greatest argument against God. And um, in fact, it was even Thomas Aquinas, as I mentioned, the great medieval Christian philosopher who believed this. And that leads people like the contemporary uh, leader in, in genetics, Jerry Coyne, to, to just say, what's religion and religious belief? It's irrational. Here's the quote, all religious belief as is unfounded and irrational, and I consider religion to be superstition. I close then with not proofs of God, but can we know about God through nature, through the world that God has created? This goes back to uh, what Copernicus says, said, that the universe is wrought by a supremely good and orderly creator. So this is called natural theology, which is uh, defined as the inquiry into the existence and attribute of God without referring to or appealing to any divine revelation. You know, the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or the New Testament Gospels or whatever. So it uses reason to come to a natural knowledge of God. And there's a few ways to do this. You can appeal to the order of the world, as we've seen in terms of the teleological argument, but not so much as an argument and a proof, but as a way of saying, you look at the way that um, there's a a order to this world and there's a providence. We know that God is providential, that God is a God who is rational, who does things with orderliness. There's an appeal to the beauty of nature, to look out and to say that the world is beautiful and therefore there is a God who's behind and the source of this beauty. The world is charged with the grandeur of God as Gerard Manley Hopkins, once the poet, once stated. There's also this natural knowledge of God, what John Calvin, the uh, Protestant writer 
and theologian from the 1500s talked about as a awareness of divinity, to use his quote, a natural awareness that is in all of us. And this is one way that people have described um, the natural religious sentiment, that there is an order, maybe not always a god, but at least an ultimate order. The Taoists call it the Tao, for example. And that throughout history, human beings have been religious. Uh, we are seeing some movement away from that. And atheism has been growing, uh, you know, for you know a few hundred, a couple hundred years now. But really, you look through time and through the planet even today, and many, many, the high percentage, many, many people are, and the high percentage of human beings are religious. One way to understand this is through what's called the cognitive science of religion, that there's a bias in the human brain toward belief. And I'll close with this from Justin Barrett. Um, who's a cognitive scientist and has studied young children, uh, that is children before adolescence. And they believe uh, at least nine things. First of all, that superhuman beings exist with thoughts, wants, uh, thoughts and wants. Um, secondly, most children believe that there are elements in the natural world that are purposeful and naturally designed. Third, that superhuman beings know that hum things that human beings do not. Fourth, they may be invisible and immortal, but they are, and they are outside of space and time. Fifth, they have character, and they may be good or bad, these superhuman agents. Um, sixth, like human beings, they have free will and can punish or reward. Seventh, that they are moral norms that are unchangeable. Eight, that people exist without their earthly bodies after death. And nine, what's called a hyperactive agency detection device. So um, I'll give this last one just a little bit of context. If, as I'm recording, I heard a door slam behind me in this room, I wouldn't think, oh, there's a door, it's closing. I'd think, who closed that door? And I'm naturally, hyperactively given over to agency, to someone closing that door. And we can see how this is uh, advantageous for survival. If I walk down, if I'm taking a hike in Upper Park on this uh, September day and I'm walking and I see a squiggly uh, stick and I go, oh, that's a snake. And uh, I go further and I, the first time I say, no, it's not a snake, it's a squiggly stick. I see it again, a squiggly object out of the corner of my eye. And I jump away and I say, oh my gosh, that's a snake and it's a squiggly stick. And I do that for 10 times and only one time does it happen to be um, let's say, uh, a non-venomous snake. But in all of those times of being overly cautious, I've avoided the possibility that one time I surprised a rattlesnake and I got bitten. And so uh, this is the evolutionary idea of why it appears that we have the ability and natural ability and naturalness to think there is agency in that it is often overly subscribed. Um, so those are nine characteristics that Barrett and other people have found. And uh, if you think about this, does this prove or disprove God, this natural religious belief? If there were a God, this might be very much the way a God would create us. If there were no God, this would be a reason that we came to believe and create a God in some ways in our own image. Of these various proofs, for God and disproofs of God, do they? which ones are persuasive to you? Which ones 
are not persuasive? And really, a deeper question, is, is religious belief something that's proven or disproven?